Hi. Hello. I'm Julian. And I'm Tom. We are Team Binge, and we are here to talk about Masters of the Air, which is a Apple Plus show, and this is a continuation of Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks doing World War II stories, both Band of Brothers and The Pacific. We're part of this, and we are going to be talking about episode one, although episode one and two were released on the same day, so there may be some overlap, but our discussion is going to be focused on episode one, but from a spoilers perspective, please watch both episodes before we dive into this, and Tommy, before before you get too far, I'm just going to do this right away. Spoiler alert, we won. Smart. That's good. (laughs) No, that's a good, we won, USA chant, insert here, good job, Tom. I thought you were going to give me like a podcast note. Instead, you did the right thing, which is wonderful. Just um, put that out right away, right away. I appreciate you. Tom and I both have a affinity, certainly for Band of Brothers, a show that we have watched a number of times. I don't know where Tom lands on the Pacific, um, I think it is like equally as important as Band of Brothers, but mm-hmm. from like an entertainment and like enjoy. I mean, enjoyment is a is a very shallow description of these types of shows. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I don't find myself going back to the well of the Pacific nearly as much as I recently rewatched the Band of Brothers and just it's just an incredible incredible show. Yeah, I feel like the Band of Brothers did such a great job of following that that group of guys and, and learning about their story, whereas the Pacific was, I think they jumped around a little bit more and was just more about like that harrowing circumstances that those soldiers were in. Still fantastic shows, but yeah, Band of Brothers seems like that's the one I want to keep going back to and learn more about or keep rewatching Winters and, and you know his, his arc. Sure, and I think when you take the the literature that it comes from. So Band of Brothers by Ambrose. uh, It is very like linear. And when you read it, which I've read it, it it, like makes sense to how they did the show. And then when you take the Pacific, that's a combination of um, uh, Sledge's book, which is with the old breed and um, my helmet for a pillow. It, it, It does like intertwine, go back and forth. But I think the other thing to say is like, Greatest Generation, Tom Brokaw, like that's Band of Brothers. The Pacific, mm-hmm. there's like a there's like a dirty, gritty, like uh, it's just brutal. Not to say Band of Brothers doesn't have like brutal moments, mm-hmm. but like the Marines in the Pacific, like trying to gain inches in volcanic ash, um, it's rough. So all of that to be said leads us to Masters of the Air which is a continuation of those World War II stories. This is based on Donald Miller's book, Masters of the Air, which um, I have read, really enjoyed. I would encourage people to read it or at least listen to the, there's a fantastic audio book um, that they do of it. And so I've been very excited for this show to come out. Um, They released the two episodes. I, I will just say from the top, they're different and it's tough. They're different from when I say that from Band of Brothers in the Pacific, and I feel like I'm going to constantly compare the two. Mm-hmm. But what I am also doing is realizing I've watched Band of Brothers so many times, and like <laughs> there's things you pick up every watch. There's things I pick up as I get older, as I've read more books on the history of World War II. Like this one, I, I feel is a honestly a fantastic show. Um, once again, enjoying and like from an entertain- entertainment is feels very shallow, uh, knowing <laughs> what the history was and like the dire straits. But I think just from a like a show perspective, uh, I'm I'm very much I think they've done a fantastic job. Um, it's just different than Band of Brothers, and mm-hmm. and that's something I, I I think as we talk through these episodes, Tom, um, I would love to give some insight, having read the books, and then get kind of your feelings and impressions like did you find yourself comparing this to those other series oh yeah you can't help but to i mean the way the the score is the cinematography the acting like everything is done so well and in that same vein as band of brothers in the pacific um i I found myself 
struggling at least initially with the characters and trying to like understand their dynamic and how they kind of go together like both buck and bucky i like their relationship but i don't feel like i've gotten quite enough from the other characters to really i don't know feel as much um of that connection that i did with band of brothers but to your point like i don't i don't remember what my first watch of band of brothers was and and where i felt two episodes in sure um, it's also a little bit different and, and more difficult of a show and we talked about this a little bit offline showing these guys in these harrowing situations in the in the air in these planes like you've got to wear masks everything is just super cramped and tight it's very difficult to kind of show some of this action um, but i think they're doing just such a fantastic job thus far because every every action sequence we've had in these first two episodes has just been incredible sure sure you make a great point like there's a difference between watching winters like nothing on his face and then watching you know gail clevin john egan oxygen mask things are exploding um but from the top tom a couple of things this is hanks and spielberg wonderful to see him i love that they're continuing these stories the other name mm -hmm. that jumped out at me as i'm watching the opening credits is graham yost uh who is involved in band and the and band and brothers as a uh, i think writer director i don't think he directed but writer and, and producer and, and then also Justified, which is a series I love and that you hate because you hate Justice and <laughs> uh, Timothy Oliphant. You're on record as uh, <laughs> hating Timothy Oliphant. Um, but Graham Yost also did uh, Silo, which is another show that we did a podcast on, which had, I think, a similar gritty kind of dark tone. It was it was a good good series as well. Yeah, a Yost, you're going to get like great visual. They're going to put the money in what's on screen so that it doesn't look hokey. Like, I don't know. Love Graham Yost. Love what they're doing with this show. Uh, great intro. I'm just going to say that from the top. All of these have to have this like kind of soaring, like, hey, this is when the world thought evil. Mm -hmm. And this, I, once again, you compare it to when the Band of Brothers theme music goes on, something stirs in your soul. If it doesn't, go see a doctor. But <laughs> I, I, I know that this intro, by the end of the series... I'm going to enjoy, I'm going to revisit. Um, mm -hmm. They do kind of this like faceless people standing like next to airplanes on the airfield. There's a lot of the sun going up, which I think is interesting because so many of these like missions, because they did daytime bombing, like they were leaving early morning, mm -hmm. but they weren't flying at night. So I, I mean, I don't, I don't know who did the score. Shame on me, but uh, just it, it sounds great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I like these sequences where they give you just like small little snippets of the show and kind of what we're going to see. And it's just so dramatic and, and brilliant. It's, it's great. Sure. I feel sure. like I want to stay up top here. One of the things I think that was so great about Band of Brothers and sorry to keep comparing it, but like the intros in Band of Brothers, not only do they have a great like intro with the credits and everything, but then they had those like little testimonials with the actual, you know, survivors of the war and, and the characters that were portrayed, which just added just this extra layer of, I mean, just, I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's just being able to see these guys actually tell their story. Um, it was it just kind of brought you that much more into the story. Sure. Which you don't get with Pacific and, and this. They had the intercut of easy company guys that were still alive as... Mm -hmm you know, old men doing interviews. And what I thought the show did great is they didn't tell you who was who. So yeah. you were like listening to a veteran talk about their experience and that led in, which with this show, we'll right now we'll dive into kind of the main characters to your point, And it's tough having only watched it once. And also looking back at those other shows, like how much I picked on the maybe ancillary characters um, but with this show, I don't know that there's less of a human element, but they really just focus on two guys. And so I'm mm -hmm. interested to see, you know, uh, we'll, we'll talk about bomber crews and all that stuff. But uh, and, and part of this is they have Austin Butler in this show. And I feel like <laughs> Austin Butler has been like he is the Clark Gable of our <laughs> like they're like, hey, you want a movie star now that there's no longer movie stars? Austin Butler. He's going to play Elvis, and also uh, he's going to be Gail Clevin, uh, who mm -hmm. goes by Buck in this show. And then you have 
Callum Turner, who's playing John Egan. And so Egan and Clevin uh, are like our main characters. And then the other big name is this Barry Keoghan, um, who's been in a bunch of like Oscar nominated movies. Mm -hmm. He plays Curtis Biddick, which it's tough for me. He's like, he's an Irish guy, I think in real life. He does like a, like a New York accent, but I think in real life Biddick was from like Wisconsin. So (laughs) there's, there's uh, several accents happening here that I struggle with, but our main focus is Bucky and Buck, which they're like, Hey, you want us to confuse you with nicknames? Guess what? Bucky and Buck. Um, I, having read Donald Miller's book, I like the book itself. And and I don't want to bore people with this, but the book itself is like a expansive, um, like history of the army air corps during world war two. So where this show is more focused on the people, the book would use these guys stories to kind of tell the bigger tale of what, like the 100th, the 8th Air Corps, all the what they were doing. And so mm-hmm. it's interesting where like Band of Brothers were like interviews with the veterans and it, it dices up very nice to like each character kind of having their story. This, I feel like they had to make a choice of being like, hey, Egan and Clevin are like the main characters or like what we can, like the through line to tell this story. Um, And I guess what I'm saying is they're taking just a very small portion of a very big book to tell Mm -hmm. this narrative. Um, And and I think they do, you know, we're two episodes in. I think they do a pretty good job. But I do feel like they leave out some of the like kind of larger contextual things. And Tom, I don't want to question your World War II like history knowledge. But (laughs) did, did you find yourself struggling of being like, where are we going? What's going on? Like where, I don't know. Did, did, did you have those questions or were you just I think in so. it? So yeah. I mean, as somebody that I'm not a history buff by any means, I know some of world war two and a big chunk of my knowledge is from band of brothers in Pacific. Um, but like timing wise, like I didn't know like what point we are in the war, um, where they kind of were, they make mention they they like fly over France at one point, like on accident kind of a thing, but I didn't, didn't really know the context quite as much. So what I wanted to do, and this may be helpful, maybe not, but just kind of give that. And, and so like our two main characters, Egan and Clevin, um, most of these guys in World War II were not like um, career military people. They joined because a war was happening or after Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. So for context, these two guys joined the Army, and in this sense, the Army Air Corps, which this is before the modern-day Air Force existed. Um, they joined in 1940. So 1940, the rest of the world is involved in World War II, Uh, The U.S. does not get involved until Pearl Harbor, which happens in December of 1941. And man, Tom, I hope I get these dates right, because mean (laughs) history people will come after you on the Internet. I know that much. But so these two guys and they're both majors, which is a moderately high rank in the officer corps of the military. The other thing I wanted to point out. So they joined in 1940. America gets involved in December of 1941. So these guys have been training ultimately for where the show brings us into the war at 1943. So these guys have been training and getting ready for this war until they go to England in 1943. The other thing I think is important is because these airfields were located in England in order to fly to occupied Germany, the Blitz, so Germany bombing the UK, was like in 1940. So when we see mm. the like British people, like in one of these scenes, there's a kid who's got a hook for a hand. Like the the British people have been enduring a air campaign from the Germans for a number of years. Mm. And then the last date I think is important is D-Day, which is where we invaded Normandy and into France. That doesn't happen till 1944. So with this show, we're in 43. The idea being establishing like air superiority and doing bombing runs until 
D-Day where a ground war opens up. Does that help at mm. all in terms of dates? Yeah, I appreciate that. It gives me a more context. Do you think the show is going to get to D-Day and like have them be the air support then? Or there wasn't a lot of air support on D-Day? What's your? Where do you think the series is going? I, honestly, having read the book, the series is going to go through the completion of the war. Um, mm-hmm. Like what D-Day means... I think will matter to some of the characters, but that will develop as we as we see the show. But I, you can't send a bunch of ships across the channel um, from Britain to Normandy and France unless you have air superiority, um, because mm-hmm. part of the thing that they do airstrikes on is U-boat pens. Um, and a U-boat is a German submarine, and the German submarines were wreaking havoc in the water and so that's why in this show there's a couple of times where that is their target like u-boats are like crippling shipping supplies being able to Mm -hmm. get people from one place to another um and so that's that's the important of uh, the importance of those of those targets I think it's worth mentioning since you just brought it up, like the other Tom Hanks uh, movie that came out a handful of years ago, The Greyhound. I think it's kind of covering part of that, right? How they were trying to do like supply runs. I don't know if it was across the Pacific or where it was, but again, another fantastic Hanks uh, war war drama. Yeah, it's an Apple, Apple movie. And I think you and I have talked about it before a little bit, but it was a show that like came out or a movie that came out. And I was just like, I don't know. It was an Apple movie. So I... I don't know why I pushed it aside, but I think on mm-hmm. your recommendation, I watched it. It's phenomenal. Like, it, I mean, mm-hmm. very tense, like not over the top, but gives you an like an incredibly what feels like accurate view of what was going on. And um, what I think that show does or that movie does well and this show does well is like it. it's diving into the lives of these guys that and as the book points out, these guys could be over, you know, Normandy, over France, dropping bombs, like flack coming up around them at noon and then be back in London on a date at 6 p.m. (laughs) And like going from those extremes is something Mm -hmm. most wars don't have. You know, modern Mm -hmm. day war, you're deployed for, you know, six months to a year you're not going back to paris to dance and listen to big band music <laughs> and egan singing um which i i really liked how they brought those things in um and they they bring like the juxtaposition of egan and buck as like egan is kind of your fly by the seat of his pants he's living life like one yeah, day to the next head. uh mm-hmm. what's that He's like kind of more like the hothead, whereas uh, Buck uh, or Gale is a little bit more just kind of cool, calm, collected, doesn't like gambling, doesn't like drinking or won't drink. Um, I like the came the Came from that little little town in Footloose where they don't dance. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I mean, even the uniqueness of that conversation where he's like, one of them's headed over three weeks before the other. Like the weirdness mm-hmm. of being like, there's a chance I might not be on this earth by the time you get there, but all of them like willing to go. I, I don't, what's your relationship to Austin Butler? Have you seen, did you see Elvis? Have you watched Austin Butler in anything? I haven't. Like all I know was that he played that iconic role. I was told he played it really well. I struggled to watch like those kind of documentary or not documentary, but those like, types of autobiography movies that are probably really, really good, but they're really, really long. Um, so I never ultimately gave it a shot. All I do know is apparently for getting ready for this show, he had to get like a dialect coach because he had like resting Elvis voice. So he had to get rid of it. for <laughs> Resting Elvis voice. Yeah. It, like he was like, ah, I, uh, Hey baby, I got to talk like this forever. Now he sounded like Johnny Bravo. And uh, here's what I'll say about Austin Butler. Like, I honestly, when I heard he was the lead in this and like knowing he was like Hollywood's darling and he was Elvis and he's just super handsome, I was almost like, golly, I hope he's a good actor. I think mm-hmm. he does a great job. Both him and and, yeah. and um, Callum, who plays Egan, very believable. I, I see them as friends, even though they're very different. And I like how the show is like pointing out how these guys like spend their time 
trying to detox almost from mm-hmm. like the terrible job that they um, that they have to do. And and in terms of like how terrible it is, having read the book, like their survival rate was abysmal. It was like. Uh, in terms of these guys that were in these bombers, one out of four would complete 25 combat missions. And and the way these guys counted it was if you if you made it through 25, you got rotated back. You were you were done. Like so, you literally are like counting the mornings you have to wake up to go on a mission, and you have to get to 25. And then as the mm-hmm. war stretched on, and the attrition rate was higher, and they needed they extended that to 30. And so, Tom, I don't know if you've ever read Catch-22, one of the best books ever written by Joseph Keller. Uh, it, it is uh, a black satire about a bombardier in World War II and how every time he meets his mission quota, they up it. So he's like, he just gets done with 25 <laughs> and they're like, guess what, you're Syrian? It's 30 now and then 35. Yeah. And so that's all I could think about. But like the terrible nature of what these guys were doing, it was like... Yeah, one out of four would complete their, like two thirds of them were either killed or captured. Um, and so in and, the book- and weren't they ultimately like nicknamed like the Bloody 100th? Like that was the name of this division? Yep, it, that was the name of their uh, of their group. And then like the book goes on to talk about, like, you know, you've got a grunt in the field, like fighting. And like, there is a glamorous nature to like pilots and guys flying in the Air Corps. But essentially, mm-hmm. if something goes wrong, when these guys parachute, if they can parachute, uh, if their parachute works, where are they landing? They're landing in the middle of, you know, yeah, occupied, enemy territory. Um, mm-hmm. occupied enemy territory. So um, ultimately, the, the number I thought was very poignant uh, from the book is that these guys suffered like 26,000 casualties, which was more than the entire Marine Corps during World War II. Um, and mm. it's just like a, a, a staggering number, but like, I don't know. I feel like it's important to know the stakes of, like while these guys were singing and dancing and drinking hard, like their mm-hmm. chances when they went up in that plane were one in four that they were gonna come back. And, yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense too, right? Like if you don't know if you're gonna have a tomorrow, like when you go back, you just completely let loose and try right. to forget about it. And they even right. make a point like, where like Buck was, was or Bucky, he was there three weeks earlier, and one of the guys says, "Hey, don't tell everybody about how like crazy this this is, um, because we just don't we don't want them to kind of come in knowing it." And then Gail has that first mission, and then immediately it's just like, "What did we get ourselves into?" Right? Why didn't you tell me? Which I have a tough mm-hmm. time that that conversation didn't happen. Like when <laughs> when Gail lands, he's like, "Oh, you went on missions as an observation. What was it like?" And you could probably, Egan's going to have a tough time being like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, it was cool. It was cool. Everything went well. Engine wasn't (laughs) on fire. We weren't like, you know, strafed by the Luftwaffe. We were all good. Um, And uh, I guess to to the point of like the casualties and the dangers of things, they did not spare us in the first episode, like sending us into this, like terrible world in in terms mm-hmm. of and from a show perspective like i understand they're not going to have real like measure schmitz and folk wolves flying around and b17s i felt like from a visual this was really well done like believable harrowing um you know my thoughts on cgi and the stuff i get upset with but I don't know. I felt like it's confusing, but I mean, combat's confusing. So like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I I felt like just from that sense of harrowing and danger, the the show does an excellent job, which is different than Band of Brothers, where it's something you've seen before. Dudes shooting at each other from trenches, that type of thing. This is in Mm -hmm. the air, machines. I don't know. Did, Did you feel like... It was harrowing enough for you, Tom. I know you love to watch a dog fight. <laughs> I feel like you've seen like like snippets of this in movies, like like Pearl Harbor or like some of the other ones that kind of came out recently-ish. But 
the way this show does it, it's just so much more grounded and realistic where you see these guys in these different positions of these bombers and the jobs that they had and the crazy tight spaces that they were put into for hours on end and no radar, no GPS. Like it's just, it's done so much better. I think than any other world war two aerial show or movie that I've ever seen. Sure. Sure. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. To your point, you brought up the like directional like technology. So on these uh, on these air crews, there were navigators, and I our narrator. Uh, I don't know that I picked it up on the first watch, but our narrator is Harry Crosby, um, and he plays the guy that gets airsick, which is just a funny <laughs> like. Why would you ever volunteer for this? I'm sure you don't find out, but. You know, he didn't get drummed out. But this this is a real-life, uh, you know, real-life vet. Uh, he wrote a book that was called A Wing and a Prayer. Um, and so uh, in the Masters of the Air book, they draw on his uh, narrative. So I think it's interesting that sh- the show is taking him as the narrator. And whereas Band of Brothers, I think, kind of swap narrators through episodes, I think it's Harry through one and two, right? I think so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he's the one who gets airsick. Bubbles is his best friend. What, what I thought the book did well, and maybe I was a, I, I felt like I watch these shows with a spouse. That spouse has questions. I try not to get mad at that spouse when they ask <laughs> questions. Um, I'm, I'm, fa- I'm fallible. Um, what I don't know that the show did a great job of is kind of explaining who is on the ship or who is on the plane from like a crew standpoint. Um, mm-hmm. Cause there's a lot going on. Like there's some confusion. And so did you get a sense of the space and the people on the vehicle as they're flying Tom? No, I mean, not really. Like I, everything just seems so cramped and like, I get there's a bunch of different gunners and stuff on there. Um, I, I feel like you got a little bit of scope of like how big these bombers were when they all were flying in formation and then they had like the smaller like dogfighting type planes and forgive me I don't really know all the plane names um, but yeah I, I don't I don't think they cared as much to kind of focus on each individual role more so just like the navigators and the pilots seemingly right so what's funny is in the book he points out that these giant aircraft like the aluminum that they were made out of, you could punch through with a screwdriver. So you're like in this tube hurtling through time and space. And like in terms of armor, you've got like a sheet of aluminum. Um, But so on a crew of a B-17, just to kind of break it down, because I feel like it's helpful. You'd have two pilots, pilot and co-pilot. They were officers. You'd have a navigator, which is what Harry Crosby is. And then you would have a bombardier. And what I think this show does well, and that I don't know that I really realized, the bombardier is that guy that sits with the navigator. He's the one that when Crosby explodes his bag of puke, um, (laughs) it it sprays all over him. During the bombing run, that bombardier would use the bombing site and he would actually take control of the plane. So the pilot would get him close and then 30 seconds out, a minute out, whatever it was, the bombardier would then be controlling that plane from below. All four of those guys were officers. Um, mm. The navigator and the bombardier probably would have like been through flight school, but maybe didn't get their wings, something happened. Um, and so you have four officers and then a uh, crew of gentlemen. enlisted. Go ahead. Oh, is it four officers and a gentleman? Or Yes, four officers and a gentleman all <laughs> raising a baby in New York. 
So I believe that is the um, movie with uh, Magnum P.I. that we all knew and love. Um, Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck. Thank you. Uh, I was going to leave it at Magnum P.I., but you helped (laughs) me out. Anyways, so on the crew, we've got like radio man, flight engineer, the dude probably with a bunch of wrenches that makes sure the thing flies. Um, And one thing, they talk about the ground crew in one of the episodes, but like all these machines were like top technology and mass produced. So Mm -hmm. when like one stopped working, I don't know that anyone could be surprised. It's like this was made three (laughs) days ago. We flew it over here and we're just trying to... Uh, tape it together with duct tape and nuts and bolts but um i thought about that too and i don't know if they'll be i would assume they're going to dive a little bit further into it but we got a glimpse of like those engineers on the ground that have to fix and repair all these these bombers and stuff and planes when they kind of come back which i feel like just completely like unsung heroes like granted they're not putting themselves in in harm's way and, and being in these planes trying to drop bombs but like the work that those guys did to be able to get these things back up and be like airworthy was was wild sure yeah no certainly and i think a good crew chief you probably keep on the ground but i have no doubt every once in a while those guys were probably brought in as like waste gunners um in order to supplement crews we, mm-hmm. we quickly see with this show like the deterioration rate of um casualties leading to them needing essentially bodies but mm-hmm. um so yeah uh flight engineer like gunners tail gunner all those things i just want to say once again having watched documentaries had read these all of this stuff like being a um uh, a a bottom turret gunner like that guy that squeezes into that uh, plexiglass case yeah um (laughs) Uh, in the book, it mentions it's typically like the smallest person of stature is like, hey, dude, you're the belly gunner. Good luck. Uh, that just seems like the worst for anyone that has any type of claustrophobia. Seems like the worst idea. I don't think you need claustrophobia. That just literally seems like the worst possible thing. Like absolutely no room to stretch to do anything. Um, as we see, like this one guy gets like frostbite because of how freezing cold it likely is up there. I just miserable yeah wild and these guys are operating at like twenty thousand, i believe to like thirty thousand feet don't quote me scientists so there's no oxygen (laughs) that's why they all have to have oxygen and then something the show like kind of points out a little bit and and what's interesting is uh, like they are discovering flying at these altitudes in real time so like the medicine and the medical portion of it no one knows until it happens to them and so the show has a moment where they do talk about, hey, like it's free, it's below 50 up there. And so that's why when that guy touches those guns, he leaves parts of his hands on there because it's just <laughs> yeah. frozen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, all of those things, I, I feel like I have a perspective on from the book. And I think the show does a good job of, of you know, pointing it out. But once again, I... I watched this with my spouse. There were a lot of questions, so I feel like some of that stuff is um, is is helpful to know. And ultimately, the show focuses on the characters, and I love like Clevin like following in Egan's tracks as he makes his way to England, and he's like mm-hmm. at the bar. He's like, "Hey, mm-hmm. barkeep, uh, Egan, who you ran into, told me to give this to you. I don't know why or where." <laughs> I thought this was a great piece of storytelling. It's like mm-hmm. everyone knows the guy that goes off the rails and you've got to clean up his messes. And Clevin's <laughs> the guy that cleans up his messes. I, I just, I don't know. The dynamic between those two, I find very funny. Well, and you mentioned too, the idea that he's like following him on the same path. Like they're, he's just a little bit behind him. I thought that was, that was kind of cool. Cool way to showcase that. Yep. Yep. And we... Find out that Egan loves to sing, which I thought was very important. The throwing dart scene was great where he's singing. <laughs> and this is part of the book. They're like, when Egan wasn't flying, he was at the local pub singing uh, with some <laughs> local, uh, like singing local Irish uh, folk tunes. I don't know. It was uh, all very funny. The importance of bikes, which you kind of think, 
I don't know. You're like, oh, Egan is a jerk for taking these people's bikes, but ultimately he's getting one for Clevin when he shows up. And I thought yeah, that was like that a was cool. interesting moment. Mm-hmm. Tom, I had to look up whether or not Norwals are real. Do you know if Norwals are real? <laughs> narwhals? Yes. Narwhals are the unicorns of the sea. Real things. Okay, so you knew they were real. <laughs> All right, I had yeah. to do some internet sleuthing to find out whether or not they were a government host. Oh, our government hoax. Sorry, not a host. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, Marvels can't host anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. The two things I want to mention in this opening episode that I think are are interesting is the accidental flight over France. So this is pre-D-Day. France is still occupied by Germany. Just like the idea that these are guys are piloting these planes with a compass, like a mm. speed and a direction. <laughs> And like some maps that are, I don't know, pretty decent, not the best, and protractors. And like if you stop paying attention um, for even a little while to throw up, you're not going to know where you're at. And I I just, I thought this show did that very well, just to kind of, from a perspective of, hey, these, these airplanes aren't pressurized, so you have to wear oxygen. They're not climate controlled, so your hands are going to freeze. Also, no GPS. You can't put in Google Maps where like the Luftwaffe and the subpens are. Um, I, I don't know. I, I thought that All was... that is beyond fascinating to me. I could barely get around with Google Maps in the city, let alone flying a plane, doing the math, like, and then actually looking outside and knowing what that land mass is. It's absolutely wildly impressive. Sure. For the time. And so when they are asking for like headings and stuff, when they're calling that to the navigator, what he's ultimately giving them is a point on a compass. So a 360 Mm -hmm. degree, um, that's what he's giving. And they're kind of working off of that. So uh, radar. I feel like the other thing real quick before you get into that, and and maybe you're going to touch on it. Like they have those scenes where they're flying through the clouds and they're like on top of each other, potentially going to collide in midair. Like that is just wild too. And I like the way they signal to each other with those flares. Um, just so many of these cool little details that I just had had no idea of. Right. So much like analog that you mm-hmm. like nowadays would be done like by computers, by radar. Um, what I thought was interesting is just some of the, the like, terminology of when they get their mission briefing them being like the low low and then being upset about that and like ultimately what that means is they are like the furthest back in the formation and the lowest altitude so essentially Mm -hmm. everyone else is going to fly over the target before us and we're going to be at a lower altitude so those anti-aircraft gunners by the time we cross the target they're going to know what altitude we're at and mm-hmm. like watches coming from a mile away. And so, um, and that's why like they also talk about just formation flying in terms of like, you need to be right on my wing because ultimately that lead airplane, and we see it with uh, Crosby when he's like moved up to the commander's plane, that lead plane is getting everyone to target. And then when they drop bombs, everyone else is dropping bombs. So, mm-hmm. There's not this like coordinated, laser guided, radar guided, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I you know, I, I thought that was all very, uh, very interesting. And then from that analog perspective, not that doors don't come off airplanes nowadays, which is <laughs> crazy, but uh, we have this moment where they're flying in, like just to get to England, and uh, the landing gear won't won't lower, and and so. Mm-hmm. The other thing to point out is just like these guys literally had to get these planes from the U.S. to England. They had to do it in legs of flight with aircraft that weren't foolproof. And so like the casualty rate just from test flights and Mm. guys like missing runways or the 50 mile an hour winds, um, all of that to me. I, Tom, as I get older and older, I hate flying and I don't know that this show (laughs) is going to make me want to fly anymore. No, probably not. I mean, outside of knowing that the technology is a lot better, but not air, not airproof. Or, uh, I mean, we, we still have George flying off planes is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> that's true. Very <laughs> true. And people having angry rants in the aisles, you know? That's, mm-hmm. that's something. God mm-hmm. bless oh, air marshals who tase people. Um, <laughs> one piece of military terminology, I don't know if, like, 
they say Wilco a lot in this, which means will comply, which is just like, got it. I got the order. I'm going to go do it. I feel like that is something that was asked in my household. <laughs> and uh, I feel like uh, it's worth worth saying. there. So in Band of Brothers, we have the dynamic of, in the opening of Sobel, who is like the, uh, I don't know, kind of tyrant leader. And then the worst of all the friends, the worst of all the friends. Yes. Um, And then in this, they also kind of have this thing where Egan works for a guy who is very by the book, like dresses Egan down, doesn't think much of him as an officer. And so you do have this in the like air wing and the stories of these guys. Like there are pilots who like being a pilot and being good in combat is the most important thing. And when they're not flying those missions, like the rules and regulations kind of go away, go by the wayside. Mm-hmm. And so there is a, a like a an interesting mix of obviously branches of service all have their their different um, ways they operate. But I thought it was interesting where and Egan, they have him as they call it the air exec. Uh, you they're telegraphing that Egan is not meant to write a desk, which I thought was. <laughs> Um, a very interesting way of like, because I don't know that that's in the book. I, I think that is a show. I could be wrong, but I believe that is a show um, creation just to show mm-hmm. that this guy's a leader of men. Don't make him like, I don't know, dig latrines and measure tie length and stuff like that. Yeah. And like the way he goes about it, like I think when he's like confronted, he's like, are, are you uh, hung over? He's like, no, 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 that's going to come a couple hours later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, when he meets his new CEO and yeah, in the second episode, he's like, are you still drunk? He's like, the car- the coffee sharpens me up, I believe this is, I believe this is his term. Um, as I watched this show, Tom, did you ever watch The Cold Blue, the HBO documentary? On- no, I've not. So there's an HBO documentary. And what I think is a little bit interesting is the other two, the Pacific and Band of Brothers were both HBO shows. So I don't know if Apple just outbid them, why they decided to go with Apple. I think it's a Hanks thing. I think it's, I think it's like production company Playtone. I think they just did like when they did Greyhound and he did like Finch, a handful of other movies. I think they ultimately just signed contracts probably with Apple. Got it. Okay. Well, there is an HBO documentary, and honestly, maybe Netflix has it now. Netflix seems to be buying all of HBO's chef stuff just to show <laughs> it. Um, but there is a documentary called The Cold Blue, which is they found a bunch of um, video from these bombing raids, and they made a documentary out of it. And it's absolutely Oh, they colored it up and stuff? Yep, they colored it yeah, up. Yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, just, once again, just a terrifying experience but very well done and just kind of shows you the real life like sacrifice and gravity of the situation mm-hmm. these guys were facing i've kind of lost where we're at in the episode tom oh no you're good i mean do you want to still keep rolling with episode one do you want to just kind of keep talking through through some of the other bits with two because again i think this is a show we don't like normally for those who haven't listened to our podcast we generally go kind of scene by scene i think this is a show that's more interesting to listen to especially julian as a history buff can kind of talk more about some of the details of these squadrons and the timing and everything else so yeah i would say just maybe jump into some of the other parts in episode two if you've got them okay the only other yeah before we hop into that i think this is mentioned in episode one they they talk about a combat box which is this is going to get super nerdy but if you think before any of these planes were invented and before like air superiority and like combat in the air developed, this was all developing in real time for World War II. And mm-hmm. so there was a theory that these giant flying fortresses with their 12 machine guns, if you put them together in a formation, could defend themselves. And very quickly, we discovered <laughs> that with Germany's Luftwaffe, the Messerschmitt 109, the Focke-Wulf 190, which are mentioned in the show, just the, the those single-engine fighters, these giant flying fortresses couldn't defend themselves without escort. Um, mm-hmm. Why they didn't always have escort is because those smaller planes did not have the flight range 
Um, so these mm. B-17s, you know, could fly, I don't know, 10 hours. I'm, I'm probably wrong on that. But essentially that, those smaller planes just didn't have the capability. So that's why they were flying over occupied um, Europe alone without combat ex, ex, mm. um, escort. And so gotcha. I think it's interesting when they're talking about like tight formations, stay in the combat box. Like those were theories they were told. Hey, if you guys stick together... You like the gunners, but you've, and this show does it very well. Like how difficult those gunners, like all of a sudden there is a German fighter flying across your, <laughs> like the, and then it's gone. How do you hit that? Yeah. yeah. How do you possibly hit that? And like, even when they're swinging the gun around, it seems like they're like almost hitting one of their other like big bombers. Like you gotta be very careful where you're, where you're shooting that thing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then there is a, a conversation in the book about how often these gunners would, be like, I got him. I, I, I shot him down. And someone would be like, yep, I think he got him. And that would go down. And so like the numbers would almost get inflated. And yeah, ultimately what that gets inflated to is, hey, we can protect ourselves. Like this yeah. is how many like, you know, German uh, fighter planes were downing. And so there is a level of, are we being realistic about these numbers? Can we protect ourselves? And and so mm-hmm. I'm hoping this show, and I think they do from the intro, they show um, what I would assume would be Tuskegee Airmen. I, I do hope they get into like the fire, um, the fighter plane side of this, where the book mm-hmm. itself really focuses on these um, on these bomber crews. Um, the last thing I will say about the first episode is they do show that one scene, which I thought was very cool of the Germans running to the anti-aircraft guns. Um, Mm -hmm. And just like essentially what those were is guns fired where all those exploding clouds of flak are, are them shooting at a certain, like set at a certain altitude to explode and punch holes into um, the bombers and uh, what are those were those ultimately just like seemingly grenades like i see like one guy or one of the ships got hit with it it was just like shrapnel seemingly that kind of flew inside of the bomber right yep it's essentially just a it fires a shell that's set at a certain ad- altitude later in the war they would have like radio or uh yeah radio signals where it would like proximity to a ship it could tell mm. and so it explode but i think at this point in the war they are putting like they are judging on altitude, and then those bombs are set to explode at a certain altitude. And so that's yeah, wild. Just the amount of like ammo, yeah, amount of ammunition you would have to fire in the sky to try to hit these things. Yep, like, you I'm got sure. all these black clouds, and I mean, who knows how many of them are actually making contact? Right. I'm I'm sure those guys in the air would like less. That's uh, <laughs> that's yeah. what I um, the. The other, the other thing is, is they do on this first mission return without dropping their bombs, and I think it's important to note that they can't just fly back with live bombs and that yeah. type of weight. So between the weight and armed bombs, they have to drop them over the channel. Um, and so just the frustration of going through that, like losing and like having casualties only for you to not even drop a bomb on your target, mm-hmm. I, I thought they did that that really well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, yeah, episode here. The only criticism, well, I'm sure I'll have other criticisms as I watch this show eight different times. But <laughs> did you feel like the end, like there was a there was a quick cut from like the episode ending to I don't know if they do like the next episode there. It happens so abruptly where for a show like this, that is rather like stressful and the stakes are high. 
it did not ease me into a crescent cre- uh, credit sequence. It like cut. I don't know. Did you notice that, or is this? I feel, just me being no. You're silly? right. I think the second episode maybe did a little bit where they had like a big set piece, a big action sequence, and then it was kind of them back at base and like a little bit more of them poetically talking about like what happened or whatever, and then kind of fading to credits where the first episode seemed like, all right, we had our hour. We're, we're done with this one. Moving on to the next. Yeah. It bounced. It was like, yeah, it was, it was very, very quick. Um, Tom, I, I feel like I talked a lot, and I apologize. Give, <laughs> no, me, again, give I, me some I stuff from it. episode one that you picked up. Oh, no, you're good. I mean, again, I think a lot of what you kind of talk through, and I know you're passionate about this subject, is very interesting to hear. And I think this show could have done a little bit better job of kind of explaining that, but I get that they want to just kind of get into the action and let some of these characters kind of chew up these scenes, uh, especially Austin Butler. And I didn't really know the other guy. I'm not sure. Again, I'm sure people listening to the podcast are going to say like, oh yeah, he's from this thing and this thing. But Caitlin Turner was uh, really, really good. And I thought he's he's fantastic lead in, in this show. Um, but again, I'm having a, it, it, to me, it's still not Band of Brothers. So I don't think anything ever will be. But just getting more of this kind of stuff and telling stories of these veterans and these wars and what they had to go through, um, it's just something we all need. We all need to understand what these people went through and, and you know why we are the country we are today because of their sacrifices. That I, Honestly, that is a great point and like not to get too deep, but I do feel like I watch these shows, Band of Brothers, The Pacific, and this one like with a different sense of reverence rather than coming at it like when you and I podcast, it's typically like, hey, did you enjoy it? Like, was it fun? Mm-hmm. Like, obviously these shows, you don't want them to just be them beating you over the head with like a, there's a difference between a documentary and these shows. Um, but I think there is a level of like weightiness and importance that I give to these shows and you like when I started this, there was part of me that was like, God, I get, I, I hope they get this right. Like, I hope they don't mm-hmm. make it like weird. And I should know better. Hanks and Spielberg have done Saving Private Ryan. They've done, you know, those other series. And I, I think they're, I think they're doing this justice. Um, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I, I don't know that there's a lot of the gentlemen that actually flew these missions still with us. Um, so it's, it's tough to say. I I think there was some red carpet stuff of some veterans that are still alive, but you know, they've all got to be pushing the hundreds. So, Mm -hmm. um, as that generation, you know, leaves this mortal plane, um, to your point, I do think these, these stories are important and I, I appreciate what they're, what they're doing. Um, real quick, Tom, I think we should hit episode two and just some nods to that because I think the the stuff in one carries over into two. Um, and this opens with um, just the the main thing being like, we get more of this, of Kurt, uh, who's played by um, Barry Keoghan, mm-hmm. um, who I recognize the guy. I, I, I don't know that I've, I know that he's just, like in a bunch of movies. I don't know that I've actually seen him in much. I think he's like the Banshees of Inishiran was kind of like more like Academy big movie okay. that he was in recently. I think he had like a cameo as like the Joker in like the DC universe. Who knows if that will ever kind of come to fruition. But yeah, he's a really, really tremendous actor. I think he was also in one of those big Marvel movies too, like the Eternals, that one of their big kind of box office bombs after mm. the whole infinity series but anyways yeah he's he's fantastic and he seems like he just fits right into this time period yep he's doing a great job in this but ultimately we have egan and him drinking and throwing bottles at planes i'm like listen man <laughs> it's real thin aluminum maybe don't throw bottles at it um <laughs> that thing's got to keep someone alive but i i think what they're trying to do is like show us the combat stress that's happening here and one thing the book goes into a lot is just, once again, these guys were put in tremendous situations, but then they would be back in safety, you know, within hours, and they would have mm-hmm. to deal with the planes that didn't come home. And and the show does it where they're counting the planes that come in, um, like the guy they were drinking with the night before, he's no longer there. And, and so mm. I think you... I don't know that I need the guy throwing the bottle against the plane to understand <laughs> that, but I get what they're doing. I don't know that I need him to be like, I don't feel anything hit me, 
but I get what they're doing. Um, and so, uh, once again, I, the actors are doing great work. Um, I just think we should treat that B-17 with a little bit more respect rather than throwing <laughs> glass bottles at it, you know? I mean, that bottle, from what you told me about these uh, aluminum, I feel like that bottle could have just went straight through it. It just sticks. Just <laughs> just sticks out. And I do like when, like, Buck and Bucky, like, they're, I think they're doing, like, the, is it, like, interrogations or what they do afterwards? I found that very fascinating where they're, like, immediately when you're done, go to this room and talk about, like, what happened and right. how we can strategize for the future. I thought that was super cool that I did not know about. But they talk about, you know, there's other planes and things that went down. They want to be the ones that, like, write the accommodations and, and things and letters back to their family. And that was before he got demoted. I thought that was a really cool and powerful, powerful gesture and moment. Yeah, when they're having <laughs> – this all plays very funny where, um, like, the your hero getting demoted seems like a terrible thing. But Egan is like, I'm not a clerk. I'm not the executive <laughs> officer. Like, let me fly the missions. I'm not good at this administrative stuff. So he gets demotive. Clevin put in a word for him. I thought that was all good, like, writing. Um, and this is historically accurate. There, in the book, it talks about how Egan, like, felt the responsibility of command in terms of if someone didn't make it home, rather than give them getting, like, a form telegraph, they hand right. wrote him. Uh, mm -hmm. And even in the book, it makes mention, there's no copies of what he wrote. Everything was like handwritten, sent directly to the family. There's mm. not a carbon copy, um, and so I, I, you know, I think that there's a there's a leadership lesson in that, in terms of knowing your people and caring for them. That I I feel like because the Egan character could just be the loose cannon, like he could exactly. just be the guy that loves to drink, loves to gamble, loves to spend bike riding time with the local <laughs> pub lady. Um, but you know, in this you're seeing, he truly does like care about his crews and his men. And, and yeah, to your point, I feel like that was, that was important. Um, a big thing they do in this episode is they have the bar scene with the Brits and the Americans. Um, and once again, pointing out like the Brits were fighting this war before the Americans got involved. Mm -hmm. Um, and one thing that they they kind of point out in the scene, but I don't know if they flush it out entirely, is the British bombing into occupied Europe. They started doing daylight bombing and they were doing like industrial, like something to stop the German war machine. Mm -hmm. Their casualties were so high that they nixed that and they went to nighttime bombing and they were bombing towns civilian targets essentially it was you know if we can break the morale of the germans it doesn't matter who we kill we just mm -hmm. need to bomb and then we're doing it at night because they couldn't replace the men in planes like they couldn't take the casualties enter the americans into the war we were like we can do daytime we can do precision and that's why you have the casualty rate that um that, that the Americans did. And so you see this kind of, they try to make this conflict happen in this like bar scene, which I felt a little bit forced, but I, I kind of, knowing the history, I kind of know what they were, they were getting at. Mm -hmm. Well, I think they even have that as we get to the end of the episode where they're kind of talking about the Brits were saying like, Hey, you're suicidal. If you guys are trying to do these precision kind of bombs and they, you know, they kind of played off like, Oh, we're Americans. We're stronger. We're going to do this or whatever. But at the end of it, they're, they're saying like, yeah, this really is suicidal missions of things that we are attempting to do with um, the technology they had of their day. Right. Right. And I think the other thing worth mentioning is there is also this weird, like cultural of the Americans showing up, like getting involved late and then from a like war machine perspective, the Americans were better paid, better taken care of. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the Americans like could go to London, could buy nice things, could stay at nice places where like Britain was at this point, like several years in, they had been bombed by the Germans. So there's a, I, I don't know that this this made it just seem like, hey, we're Americans, you're Brits, we're going to end up in a fist fight. <laughs> but I think there's like some some deeper animosity, but ultimately still allies that I don't know 
um, that the, the show got to. But we do find out that um, Kurt loves punching people. He gets to punch Egan. He gets to punch, <laughs> punch a British guy in this. He's uh, great at all, it. All very fun. Um, <laughs> the big mission of this episode is they're going to bomb the submarine pens. As I mentioned previously, U-boats were an, an important um target and this leads to crosby because bubbles his buddy gets uh, sick crosby becomes the lead navigator um mm-hmm. and i don't know do they talk about the norden bomb site in the show are you familiar with what that is tom no i don't Tell okay me. so this is the other thing that leads to the americans being able to and i'm putting this in air quotes for a podcast precision bomb this Norden bomb site was developed so that these guys at 20,000 feet plus could drop these. And the brag was the Norden bomb site could put a bomb in a barrel from 20,000 feet or whatever. Hmm. Um, turns out in hindsight, wasn't that accurate. But, <laughs> you know, a good marketing plan will sell any piece of um, gear. And so mm-hmm. uh, that's why you see those bombardiers. They, they do several shots where those bombardiers are inside that site doing dials that yeah. was supposed to allow them to like reduce civilian casualties while hitting um, the right uh, the right industrial or military um, targets, and mm-hmm. I, I think studies have been done afterwards. But that's the that's why they keep showing those bombardiers looking into those um, those those glass sites. That's the Norden bomb site, which was a top secret um, item at the time. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I thought those were shot just so cool when you see him doing the best he can to try to line this thing up and then just all these bombs kind of going down, their aerial view of everything actually hitting targets. It's just, it's it's so, so well done. Exactly, exactly. I thought to myself, I can barely hit a apple with a BB gun. I would think <laughs> dropping a bomb from 20,000 feet, probably pretty difficult. Uh, The last things I'll mention about this episode were um, the idea of like Biddick, Kurt Biddick, uh, Keoghan's plane taking damage. And so he's got to like limp along with the formation. They stick with him long Mm -hmm. enough for him to land in Scotland. And then this is a pretty interesting, like the only way for these guys communicate was to find like a local telephone and try and radio in this situation they're calling they're calling from like the officers club to um where keoghan is in in scotland or wherever it was in the book it talks about these guys like taking leave and going into london and knowing a mission happened and then calling back to the base and having to talk in code and so the code being like hey did you know did the team go you know how'd they do in the game and then mm-hmm. the operator having to be like, you know, no runs scored, like three outs. And that like telling them what the casualty rate was and who didn't come mm-hmm. back. And these guys like learning about their buddies not coming home over landlines uh, between calls and, and London wow. and the base. And so they do that here. This is more of a happy call where he's like, mm-hmm. hey, we're all good. We're drinking with these Scottish fellas um but in the in the book it's i don't know it just shows like in today's technology like i can be across the world and text my spouse that they Mm -hmm. just did not have that capability um that's fascinating all all leading to uh, a bike race and some german bombing and the clip from the trailer where they talk about leading their boys through just the madness and so Mm -hmm. um Tom, you love a good bike race. Did you have money on any of the any of the riders in this one? I didn't put money on it, but man, the way uh, Gale falls there, I mean, that stunt double seemed like he hit his head pretty hard on that concrete. So yeah. hopefully he's oh, yeah. okay. Oh yeah, there's definitely the next the next day after they lost like four pilots to bike injuries. <laughs> the like Eric Zach is like, hey, no more bike races. It's done. You're gonna get court martialed. Like this is what happened. You try and have fun. Someone gets mm-hmm. injured. Higher-ups come down and say that's outlawed. Um, and and that's just how it works. But Yep, just drums, tubas, trombones. That's all they get now. Man, I don't know. The dancing back in the day also looked like it could lead to my back and ankles watching those people twist and shout. I was like, I don't know. This, this swing dancing seems super dangerous. But also part of me is like, 
Man, what what would it be like to be able to go somewhere like that, dance like that, and also everyone be able to sing a song with no music? Everyone knows the words. I think we've <laughs> talked about this before. I always find it fascinating in a show where you have a group of people singing a song. Like other than the national anthem, I don't know that we and Chubbawamba. I don't know that we could all <laughs> get together and like sing a song and know all the words. I find all that stuff fascinating. But they like didn't challenge. have Spotify, you know? Okay. Maybe Taylor Next Swift. Time. We could all get together and sing Taylor Swift and the Kansas exactly. City Chief song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Next like time that. we're all together in a public place, I'm going to start singing a Taylor Swift song and hopefully you join in. Uh, I will not. I will not, sir. Um, I'm enjoying the show, Tom. I, I mean, it's a journey. And to your point, I think these stories are important. And I think they're, this is not disappointed. That's for sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Give me, give me more of this stuff. It's, it's still fantastic. It's still hard to compare any of this stuff to Band of Brothers. I think everybody's going to, I feel like when I've seen and read some reviews on this show, it is kind of a little bit like, Hey, this isn't the Band of Brothers. It's a different thing, which is fine. Like it doesn't have to be. Um, but seeing more of these stories of, of these guys and these um, veterans doing what they did, um, needs to be seen. And I'm, and I'm glad they're producing it to this level. I agree. I agree. Uh, for those of you that have joined us for this, we appreciate it. We are also talking about True Detective on the same feed. So if you're at this point in the episode and you're like, why aren't they talking about True Detective? Well, I got news for you. That episode's going to come out at a different time. Um, we will do, whew, despite what our schedule looks like, we're going to <laughs> stick with this show um because it's just an absolute pleasure and i love talking about these things and so um if you'd like to reach out to us if i got something wrong like statistically world war ii you're a buff you don't have to email me at teambingepodcast <laughs> at gmail.com i'll read it but it'll probably hurt my soul we're doing our best <laughs> over here um please rate and review us at apple podcasts only if it's going to be kind if it's going to be mean just write it on a note, put it in a bottle, and throw it at a B-17. Um, Tom, what did I miss? Yeah, follow us on the other socials at Team Binge or Team Binge Podcast. Let us know what you think of this show. Uh, the first time you listen to us, we've got a whole back catalog of shows. Um, this is kind of new for us, this type of drama. Usually we do like murder mysteries, like The After Party, A Murder at the End of the World. Uh, we've also done some comedies like Ted Lasso. So uh, if you dig this conversation, please go uh, check some of our other uh, backlog out. And uh, thanks for thanks for listening. I have been Julian. And I have been Tom. Till next time, everybody. <laughs>